You're listening to a sermon from Pasco Vale Church of Christ. To hear more of our teaching or to find out about the church, please visit our website, pvcc.org.au. Good morning, Pasco Vale. Now, for the benefit of our newcomers and also those who miss our early messages or those who are listening online, we are currently working through the Kingdom series covering a number of books from the Old Testament. As you know, our Bible contains 66 books telling one big story, and that's about God's kingdom. And we've defined God's kingdom as God's people living in God's place under his rule and his blessing. And over the last three weeks, we've seen establishment, the destruction, and then the beginning of this kingdom pattern. So today, we'll see the progression of the kingdom as God's people are formed as nation. But before we begin, let's bow our heads and pray and ask the Lord to prepare our hearts to receive his word today. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel. Thank you for scripture in words so that we all can read and learn from it ourselves. We pray, dear Lord, that we will be faithful and to read your word and to to glean as much as we can. And we just pray, dear Lord, as we work through the passages today, that your Holy Spirit will be with us to convict us, teach us and guide us. And train us, Lord Father. May the words that we speak today and the fellowship of our hearts be wholly acceptable to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, our society is built on the foundation of the promise, isn't it? Promises from the basis of sorry, promises form the basis of all our relationships in life. In the business world, we enter into a contract. We make Promises that define our employment relationships and business partnerships. At work, we promise to work our hours and get jobs done. And our bosses promise that they will pay us for the work that we do. In marriage, we enter into a covenant. We make promises and vows to one another that define our relationship. In friendship, we make informal promises to be there for each other through thick and thin, to invest in each other's lives for mutual encouragement and enjoyment. Every relationship you have in this world, whether in the workplace, in the home, or amongst friends, is defined by one thing, a promise. Promises, covenants, and contracts, they bring confidence and clarity to the relationships they were in. They outline the foundations of that relationship, the privileges, the obligations that we owe one another. Promises bring trust and stability to our lives, doesn't it? I think this is what makes broken promises so much more hurtful and painful. Just as promises build relationships, Broken promises break relationships. So when a tenant stops paying you rent, the living arrangement is broken. Or when your friend betrays your trust, or your parent fails to show up for you, you may call into question their love for you. When you miss out on a promotion you were promised at work, you may start to question about your place in that company. Or when your partner, who promised to always love you, leaves you for someone else, those scars 
will stay with you for a very, very long time, doesn't it? Our world is built on the hope of a promise. And when promises are broken, our worlds descend into chaos and despair. Last week, we saw that as humans reject God's rule and break relationship with Him, God in His grace makes us a promise. God enters into a covenant with Abraham. In this covenant, God promises to create people through Abraham's offspring, to live in the place of Canaan under his rule and his blessings. But from that point on, from Genesis chapter 17, humans are constantly putting God's promise at risk. Out of self-preservation, we see Abraham nearly selling his wife Sarah to a king. When they struggle to have kids, they arrange for Abraham to sleep with his servant Hagar instead. And even as God preserves a covenant promise and brings forth children for Abraham, his sons Jacob and Esau nearly kills each other. And then later, Joseph's brother tries to sell him into slavery and successfully did. Genesis is filled with broken promises. And so God must constantly, constantly intervene to keep his promises alive and remain faithful to his people, even, even when his people aren't faithful to him. Now, as we come to the book of Exodus, Israel was just delivered from the hands of Pharaoh. And Israel stands now at the foot of the mountain. It's a place where they will meet God and where he will speak to them. The passage is sometimes described as the heart of the Old Testament, isn't it? Because it's where God outlines the conditions of his promises. In the Ten Rules, we now know today as the Ten Commandments in chapter 19. This will be the covenant he makes with his people. And in this covenant, God promises to bless Israel. And we make a promise to him that we will obey his commands. The promise that we make with God defines our relationship. So today, we'll see the three elements, the three elements of God's covenant with us that outlines the foundation, the obligation, and the privilege of our relationship with him. So let's look, look at the first thing. Let's look at the foundation. Now all promises have a foundation. Underlying the promise of marriage is love and companionship. Underlying the promise of an employment contract is work and salary. And the basis of God's covenant with us, the underlying is salvation, isn't it? In verse 3, as Moses goes up to the mountain, the Lord says, Tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on wings on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Israel's covenants rest on God's rescue. The book of Exodus details Israel's slavery in Egypt and how God rescued them from that captivity. Back in chapter 6, as they suffer as slaves, God says that he's heard the groaning of his people and remembered his covenant with them. 
God promised last week in Genesis 12, whoever curse you, I will curse. And in Exodus, God keeps that promise. We see that. As Pharaoh, Pharaoh mistreats and persecutes the Israelites, God sends ten plagues on the Egyptians. The Nile River is turned to blood. That's diseases, locusts, darkness, and then finally, death of the all firstborns. And each of these plagues, God is exercising his judgment over his enemies through acts of de-creation. In Genesis, we learn about creation. Now we see de-creation happening. When Genesis 1 was characterized by blessings, bringing order from chaos in creating life, light and life in the ten plagues, we see the opposite. The Nile River that was a source of life and sustenance for Egypt is now God under God's judgment. As these waters of life are turned to blood, a mark of death. Order is thrown into chaos as creation swarms out of control. Instead of peace, blessings and abundance, we get hunger, poverty, suffering and pain. And more importantly, at the end, death. Instead of light, there's darkness. And instead of light, we hear the cries of death and despair as the firstborn sons in Egypt die. But for Israel, God's people with whom he made a promise, they are saved. As God's judgment fills the land, it passes over those who bear the mark of the Lamb, the Passover Lamb. God sends, it saves Israel to the death of a lamb whose blood shields them from judgment. And then as the Egyptians bear down on the Israelites, God rescues them again, allowing them to pass through the Red Sea. While the Egyptians are swept away in the waters of judgment. God is keeping his promises saves them out of oppressive rule, to live under his rule and blessings instead. That's what the kingdom is all about, my friends. God said back in Exodus chapter 3, that in their slavery, one day, one day, as they reach a mountain, they will look back and remember how God brought them out of Egypt, out of slavery. And now as Israel gather here at the foot of Mount Sinai, it will be undeniable that God's promise is unbreakable. In verse 4, God describes salvation as bearing them up on eagles' wings, like an eagle who is fierce bird of prey, but tenderly cares for her own. So God fiercely protects his people with the tender love of mother. This is, this is the same way God covenants with us. He brings us out of slavery of sin. He lifts us up to eternal life and draws us near. So now we have a new king, Jesus, whose burden is easy and the yoke is light. Often people see Christianity as just another religion, isn't it? Or to or a hurdle to freedom, some people say. You know, where the foundation of our religion is just to be a good person, you know, live a good life, and then God will accept you. That's what they see, perhaps. 
But that couldn't be more wrong. That couldn't be more wrong. The foundation of our relationship with God is salvation. Here God says, there's nothing, nothing you can do to earn my acceptance or win my love. God reminds us that you didn't fight your way out of captivity. You did not fight your way out of slavery. I carried you out on eagle's wings. Even as God gives the Ten Commandments in chapter 20, how did they begin? God begins by outlining the foundation of that covenant. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God's covenant with us is based on salvation. Which means we obey God, not to be saved, but we obey God because we've been saved. But this is a truth we so easily forget, isn't it? You know, when God reached out to me about some 20 years ago and brought me back to his fold, my life changed. Everything about God was a delight to me. I wanted to serve God in any way I could. I would join a Bible group, disciple others, worship lead, did street outreach, went on short-term mission trips, and even attended services, tree services on Sunday sometimes, because I just had the time. Everything was a privilege. Everything was new and exciting for me, again. But after a while, things started to feel again like a burden. Instead of wanting to do these things, it started to feel like I had to do them to win God's love. The delight was gone, but the duty remained. Now I wonder if Christianity is so often misunderstood by our world. Because when they, the world looks at us, they see a religion. They see a religion of works instead of grace. A duty-bound faith which has lost its delight. Do you speak about God with delight and excitement in your voice? Or do we mutter under our breath, when we are asked, what did you do last Sunday? I went to church. I went to church. I was excited about going to church. When was the last time you said that? Let's be honest. Friends, we must never forget the foundation of our covenant with God, isn't it? Now what about our obligation? What about our obligations? Let's now turn to consider our part in that covenant. How do we relate to God once we've seen, once we've been saved and brought into a relationship with Him? In verse 5, God says to Moses, Therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possessions among the peoples. God calls his people to keep his covenant by obeying his voice, isn't it? When you marry someone and enter into covenant with them, you willingly and take on the obligations of that relationship, isn't it? 
You love and serve the other person because their delight has become your delight. Their joy has become your joy. It's the same with God in the law. God shows us what he delights in. And he calls his people to love his vision of life. Sure, it goes against culture, but it's life-giving. And by simply keeping them, Israel will fulfill God's plan for them to be a blessing to the nations. In the Ten Commandments, you notice the first four is about loving the God who saved them. And the remaining six are about loving the people he treasures. The Ten Commandments are the foundations for the whole law. Now, if we look at the Ten Commandments, you'll notice a lot of them are telling us what not to do. Don't murder, don't steal, don't lie, don't kill. You might think that these laws are so basic, and yet, believe it or not, they were actually radical. Actually radical for that day. We think, that, we think this because Christian morality has spread across many nations, and many of our laws today are built on that Ten Commandments, believe it or not. But that is not the case everywhere, my friends. Even in those days, lawlessness and immorality existed everywhere. See Sodom and Gomorrah, the pinnacles of sexual immorality. See the Philistines and the Egyptians, oppression, wars, murder, covetousness, slavery. Loving one another wasn't part of the deal. Now a helpful way I've heard the law explain is like a circle. The Ten Commandments provide the boundaries that we can't cross. But remember, Israel is to be the whole, is to be as holy as God is holy. And so the goal of the law isn't to enable us to live at the boundaries, close to the boundaries. But we are called to run the opposite direction, away from them, towards the center. So for example, the command not to not murder set the boundaries of our conduct. But we hate towards the center. We pass through not cursing someone or being angry with them until we reach the center, which is to positively promote life and the flourishment of all people. Or the command not to steal sets the boundaries on the way through. We don't envy or get jealous until we reach the center, which is to be contented with what we have and to seek justice for those of us around, for those around us. Same with lying, which is really about promoting the truth in all situations. And so with adultery too. Running away from not sleeping with anyone, we bypass not lusting after someone until we reach the center of pursuing faithfulness, holiness, and purity in our relationships. And what you find at the center, my friends, is the law, is the character of God. The law is about restoring that image of God in each one of us. That's how Jesus interprets the Ten Commandments, where the Pharisees went to define their religion simply by not crossing those boundaries. Jesus drives us to head towards the center. He says, be perfect as your Father is perfect. In this way, we can't just look at the Ten Commandments and think because we haven't murdered anyone that we're doing well. 
No, this loss demands our hearts, soul, mind and strength. Your obligations to the covenant with God will change everything. It will mold you and shape you. But friends, sadly, sadly we live in a culture of half commitments. Well, instead of committing fully to something, we make half-hearted choices. When you're invited to an event, for example, through Facebook, there's options to click interested or maybe. Because it means I'm interested in attending or might attend your event, but I won't fully commit until I see if I have anything better to do that day or only if my friends are going to. I hate that. Because whenever I organize a dive event, for example, people say maybe I don't know whether to wait for them or not. You see, we live in an age of half commitments and broken promises where we prefer to keep our options open to the hope of a better deal. We also treat God in the same way. We may be willing to commit to Him, but only to a certain point. We're willing to change until it becomes a sacrifice of our time, our energy, our resources, and maybe it becomes just a bit too much. Friends, putting sin to death isn't meant to be easy. It's not meant to be easy. In obedience, you are putting to death parts of yourself. And that is a painful process. The author Dallas Willard talks about vampire Christianity, in which we say to Jesus, I'd like a little of your blood, please, but I don't care to be your student or have your character. In fact, won't you just excuse me while I get on with my life, and I'll see you in heaven. Perhaps all we want is a bit of Jesus' blood for salvation, isn't it? But we don't really want to change. We have no desire to be fully transformed and to fully obey. Friends, when we commit half-heartedly to the commands of God, do you see how it is so inconsistent with how God has saved you? A God who bled and died for you so that you would live. A Savior who didn't love you half-heartedly, but loved you to the very end, even on that cross. It's not meant to be easy. It's not meant to be easy. God has sacrificed everything for us. What are we willing to give back in return? Our obligations under the covenant are to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Which means we need to give your whole lives to him. Just as he gave his whole life for you and for me. The people in verse 8 says, All the Lord has spoken, we will do. That was the commitment they said that they would do. Friends, today is a good day to look at your life and to ask, Is there anything you put off in following Jesus? Because it's hard. Whether it's putting a sin to death, whether it's taking a risk and stepping out of your comfort zone, ask yourself, Is there anything else 
They were putting in our place and holding on to that rather than giving it wholeheartedly to God. Friends, remember though that the law isn't about earning your salvation because in the law, God has, who gives Israel a sacrificial system, God builds into his law a means of atoning for their sin and putting things right. The law is still filled with grace because God gives us a way to deal with our failures, to constantly apply the gospel to our lives. And where back in Genesis 3, humanity through Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, away from his presence. The law of sacrifice and tabernacle provides a way for Israel to come back, to come back into the fold of his presence again. These are our obligations under the covenant, which when you think about it, is God's gift to his people for their good, isn't it? And finally, God's covenant isn't just filled with obligations, but great privileges as well. So far in the giving of the law, God has told his people who he is, and now he will tell them who they are. In verse 5, Now therefore you will obey my voice and keep my covenant. You shall be my treasured possessions among all people. For all the earth is mine. You shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God says, everything, everything belongs to me. The whole earth is mine. But he has chosen Israel to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Priests were God's representatives to his people to mediate his presence amongst them. And just like there were specific priests chosen to meet with God, here, the whole nation, the whole nation is chosen as priests to meet with him and represent him to the world. Our deepest privilege is the access that we have with a living, breathing God, a living, walking, dialoguing relationship with this almighty creator. Imagine the things you can do with the access we have with God. Imagine, my friends, the things you can do with the access we have with God. The God of this universe knows your name. Your name and my name. He knows it intimately. And we are called His treasured possessions. This shows the depth of the privilege we have as his people. Now there will be many times in your life where you feel like you're constantly breaking your promises to God, isn't it? Just trying to follow Jesus, we feel every day our own weaknesses and our shortcomings. We can see it if you're honest with ourselves. Maybe right now you don't really like where you are or who you are as well. But the privilege of the covenant is that God tells you who you really are. The word is treasure, refers to the private wealth of a great king. Even through the king, even though the king owned everything, his treasure was what was most precious to him and what he would protect at all costs. That's who we are to our almighty God. 
Now the late Tim Keller says this, the central basis of Christian assurance is not how much our hearts are set on God. No, but how unshakably his heart is set on us. To conclude, just as priests would bring people to God so they could be in His presence and see who He is, God chose Israel to bring the nations to Himself and to show the world who He is. 1 Peter chapter 2 applies this language as of a royal priesthood and holy nation to us, the church. Why? Because in Christ, we have the Holy Spirit living in us. And now, empowered by the Spirit, our goal is to go proclaim the excellences of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. The quarter phrase from the Spider-Man franchise, with great power comes great responsibility. Because of the access we have with God, we are called to preach the gospel and make Jesus known. So more people can come to experience that same privilege that each one of us enjoy. As his people, we've been chosen by God as a means to save the world. That's why God promised to bless Abraham so that Abraham could be a blessing to all nations. The author Phil Riker says that Israel wasn't just chosen from the nations but for the nations he was chosen they were chosen for the nations the same is true for us if you are a christian today you have been placed in your world in your relationships to be the presence of god bringing the gospel to the people that are around you my friends that is what we are called to be you've been placed in your job so that your bosses and colleagues will come to know who God is and what He's like. As you place their interests above your own, as you speak well of your colleagues, as you show them why following Jesus is more valuable to you than your career, it makes them wonder who this Jesus that you worship. You've been placed in your friendship groups so that you can care for your friends as well and carry their burdens, that they will experience the love of Christ through your words and your lives. And they will wonder, who is this God that you worship? You've been placed in your families to show them how being God's family transforms how you honor your parents, love your siblings, and disciple your children. And your neighbors will say, why is this family so different? And maybe for some of you, God will even place a desire in your heart to one day go to a different country as gospel workers and missionaries to bring the gospel to people who have never heard the name of Jesus. Friends, as we journey to the Old Testament and witness the kingdom of God being revealed, this is where we are. As Israel met with God at Sinai, they are God's covenant people with whom God has re-established His rule and blessings through the law. But they are still in the wilderness, saved out of Egypt, and now on the journey to the promised land in Canaan. Things are starting to take shape. 
And next week, we'll reach the high point in God's kingdom in the Old Testament. So be excited to see what the gospel, or what the Old Testament has to bring us next week. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for what you've done. It's not what we've done, not, not anything that we can do to ever gain your love. But what you've done for each and every one of us. Help us to, to be aware of our failings. But also understand our obligations to love you and to fulfill your plan for each one of us. To be a blessing to the nations as you've designed us to be. Challenge us, Lord. Convict us, Lord. And help us to take the step of faith. To put away the things that are hindering us, that's causing our commitments to be wavered. Lord, forgive us for our sins. Forgive us for the times that we put ourselves first before you, despite what you've done. Help us to mend that relationship with you, Lord. And help us to turn our hearts back to you. To reunite that flame that's that's burning within our hearts for you. Do not let grace be forgotten and our obligations become a burden. Lord, thank you. Thank you for dying on that cross for our sins. And we pray, dear Lord, that you challenge in every heart in this room and those who are listening that we will be transformed by you day by day towards the center to become more and more like you each day. In Jesus' precious and holy name we pray. Amen.